This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Take the baseline out. Uh-huh. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Hardwood Knox Podcast. I am Dan Favalli, coming at you once again without my co-host, Andy Bailey. He is preparing for law school graduation, which I assume means he passed all his finals, and then he's going to bask in that, so we're going to grant him some time off. Luckily, though, we have MBA Math founder, editor-in-chief, Adam Frommel, who also writes for the Bleacher Report. We've been co-workers for almost a decade now, which makes me feel really old to say. He's also a former co-co-host of the Hardwood Knox podcast, but he decided to abandon us because he decided he had a face for TV and not podcasting. Um, before we get started, I just want to remind everyone, implore everyone, beg everyone to please rate, review, and subscribe to us on iTunes. We can also be found Everywhere else you listen to podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, all that good stuff, Google Play. But the best way to support us right now is to go over to iTunes, take 15 seconds out of your day, search Hardwood Knox, and please leave us a review. Please rate us. If you haven't subscribed, do that. Steal your family and friends' phones. They'll thank you. Trust me. We, we know it. And... Yeah, please. So we ask you every podcast. We love seeing those numbers go up. Do it for Andy this time. Give him a good law school present and just continue to drum up those ratings. And finally, you can still get 15% off at the NBAMath.com shop where we still have fire designs up. We do need to get more fire designs up, but if you punch in promo code Benno, B-E-N-O, should be easy enough to remember since we talk about him all the time on this podcast, you'll get 15% off. That's NBAMath.com slash shop, promo code Benno, B-E-N-O. Now, the question everyone is dying to know, as they are at the start of every podcast, how are you doing, Adam? I'm doing fantastic, and I think I say this every single time I'm on as a guest, but it's still so weird to me that I'm not the one introducing the show, since that was my original role when we first started this. But I think you're way better at it now than I ever was. The spiel is much longer. I feel like that just means that you don't listen to us enough, that you're not used to it now. Is that what you're copying to? Pretty much. That's fair. I wouldn't listen to me yeah. either. You you know what I hate? I try and listen to every podcast that we record over to see how much did I ramble, how many likes and ums did I use. I hate hearing myself talk still. After going on the radio and all this stuff, after for so many years, you'd think I'd get used to it or we'd get used to it because maybe you feel the same way, but I still I hate it. I think everyone feels the same way just because it never sounds the same as what you're imagining or kind of hearing when you're talking. What if you're like a recording artist, though? You have to enjoy it then, right? No? I, I guess like maybe the, the music product that you make or something. But just like normal talking might be different. I don't know. I have no idea what the, the scientific explanation is here. Since we know that every member, both current and former of Blink-182, listens to this podcast, if they could get at us and let us know if they hate listening to themselves after recording an album versus live, that'd be great. Uh, but actual basketball stuff... We're gonna talk. We're gonna save postmortems for the Pelicans and the Jazz because Andy's not here. And the who am I forgetting? Oh, we already did the rap. Oh, the Sixers. Excuse me. Woof, that was bad. We're gonna save those for at the start of next week. We'll have those for you. We're gonna do our conference finals previews right now, and also just get to a few news items. The first of which, the Raptors firing Dwayne Casey. After having the number one seed in the Eastern Conference, 59 wins, reworking their style noticeably. This wasn't like minor adaptations. This was a major wholesale shift in how they approached the offensive end. And the other thing is 
there's data to back up that they weren't a great defensive team against good offensive teams, but when you look at where they ended up in points allowed per 100 possessions and relative to the personnel they had, specifically in the front court, in my opinion, he coached an overachieving defensive team. And someone said this on Twitter today, he's guilty of maximizing the potential of these Raptors, and that's basically it at this point. I'm wondering what your initial thoughts were on this firing. Were you surprised I would have been surprised a couple weeks ago, but after the loss to Cleveland, the sweep to Cleveland, I think that changed a lot of things just because there needed to be some sort of scapegoat, and he was the easy choice. When when I first saw the news this morning, I was pretty frustrated because I think he's the deserving coach of the year for me, and, and the last time we saw that was George Carl, and it's just not something that happens frequently. But... The more I thought about it, the more okay I was. If they go down one of two routes, they can either totally blow things up. If this is the start of getting rid of DeMar DeRozan and and completely reshaping how the Toronto Raptors play basketball and what their personnel looks like, that's fine. If they're going to promote somebody within realizing that the system that they built under Dwayne Casey was a successful one, it maximized the talent they had on the roster, and now it's a matter of getting all the players to stick to it and to execute it in those pressure-packed situations, which we didn't see in the playoffs, that's fine. Anything in between, and I think this is a mistake. It would almost, would it make you a little bit angrier? Not angrier, but would you feel worse about them firing Casey if they end up trading DeMar DeRozan because I don't think a new coach is going to come in and get more out of him and whether it's a matter of could Casey reach him it took him so long to start shooting more threes this year and then he kind of deviated a bunch from the typical offense in the playoffs and now all of a sudden you get a new guy to come in and then you get rid of I don't want to say DeMarcus uh DeMarcus DeMar DeRozan is the problem but he, he just seems like the guy for how they want to play it doesn't seem like he's a good fit for the roster. It'd be different if they didn't have all this money wrapped up in other guys and they could go out and get more shooters, uh, more wings, so that DeMar DeRozan isn't as much of a, not a liability, but just counterintuitive to what they're trying to do a little bit on the offensive end, right? It would almost make me be like, why did you need to get rid of Casey in conjunction with doing this? And it's like you said, if if it's followed by other moves, like they're tearing everything down, fine. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the the battle that we always see about whether coaches are supposed to build a system that maximizes their players or whether they're supposed to get their players to maximize their games by using the system. Because it seems like those two things could be the same thing, and they're definitely not. And in this situation, it's it's 100% having to get DeRozan's game to match the system that he's playing in and not the other way around. I don't know if that's better or worse, but it means that you might have to split it up to figure it out. What's the, if you're Masai, what is the play here then for you now that Casey's gone? Are you trying to start over? Are I'm not because I, I still believe in this team. I, even though, like the play, the loss to the Cavaliers isn't as bad as it seems when you just see 4-0 sweep. Like they lost one game in overtime. They lost another one on the ridiculous LeBron buzzer beater. If those two things go differently, it's a 2-2 series you're in a completely different psychological space. Like this system still works and that's when they weren't maximizing it because people had started deviating from it. So if I'm Messiah, I still want to promote from within. Somebody like Nick Nurse takes over. Jerry Stackhouse takes over. Some other internal candidate takes over and continues traveling down this route. Well, that's the other thing about this firing that was unsettling. And you and I talked about this earlier, earlier today. We're recording this late on a Friday night. This seems to have a lot to do with LeBron just existing. Because if you're not going to completely overturn the roster, or even if you are, it's because you just got throttled by LeBron two years in a row and got beaten by him for three consecutive postseasons. And I don't know, for Casey, for them not to overturn the roster now, like you said it before, anything in between is almost unacceptable. But I don't know that you bring in a coach. Like Stackhouse interests me. He was my top pick for the Knicks job. Fisdale was second, and they ended up picking Fisdale. The way he coaches um, Raptors, the, the Raptors G League affiliate, they aren't they don't they haven't played particularly fast. But he's talked a lot about you have to pander to your personnel, and if I had guys who want to get out and run, I'm going to want to play fast. And then he even said to Zach Lowe on an episode of the Low Post, "If I was a coach, I would have hated 
my play style because he knows what shots are efficient now. That intrigues me. But at the same time, what coach is going to come in here with this core and make them better suited to beat LeBron? Because that's what this comes down to is if the Raptors go seven with the Cavaliers. Well, it maybe it maybe comes down to beating LeBron, and that's what makes the timing of this a little bit weird. Like, wouldn't you want to wait and see what LeBron is going to do? If he's going to Houston or going to Los Angeles, you don't need to worry about this. I think the problem— I guess you can't wait that late for the coaching search, but if you're planning on promoting from within— it's probably yeah, but it's probably a little bit difficult just because you want to be preparing for the draft and free agency yourself and without LeBron, if he opts in, we'll know about it before free agency even starts and the whole Rockets rumor will start up again. But if he doesn't, he might wait till July 10th to make his decision. Didn't he wait like 10 days last time or something yeah. like that? Yeah. I'd yeah, be- I mean, it's definitely it, it, I'm just saying that it's hard for it to solely be a like we need to beat LeBron thing just for that reason. Uh, but what else is, if it's not, then why get rid of Casey? Because you you finished with the Eastern Conference's number one seed. Yes, you get bounced. I think you can still justify it by saying that they kept underachieving in the playoffs. Not that it's a LeBron thing, but that the performance declined. They weren't able to continue adhering to the principles they'd established throughout the regular season. And for that reason, the discipline isn't there. We need to change the culture. I would respect that explanation if they actually gave it to us, though. Because this yeah. feels like a... It feels more unsettling than this, but it feels like them saying, we can't change anything else, so we're going to change the coach. And they, if you look at their roster, they really can't change anything else. Before, no, they're pretty locked in. Before figuring, before factoring in the contract hold or new contract for Van Vliet, they're in the luxury tax next year. He's so, coming back, right? Like, Can we count on that? Are they willing to pay the luxury tax? They're going to have to trim <laughs> salary somewhere. And, who, and that'll bring, to kind of put a bow on the Raptors talk, what else do you see them doing from here? You said you wouldn't break it up, but do you think that one of Kyle Lowry or DeMar DeRozan will be traded or shopped? I would imagine Serge Ibaka is immovable, at least for the next year until he's expiring. Could you see them shopping Valanciunas? I think they're going to want to duck the tax, but they're also going to want to keep Van Vliet. Like, you could justify—I don't know if you can say, hey, we won 59 games, let's pay the tax, but we're going to fire our coach. That Like, that doesn't add up to me. Yeah, but it's either going to be that or I think, I mean, we're ruling out the full-scale teardown right here. So I would go with maybe Ibaka. Just, it makes the most sense. Like, as hard as he's going to be to move, he's the piece that you can move with that team. So maybe you're attaching some sort of sweetener I thought Norman, to offload his contract. I almost thought maybe Norman Powell would be the guy to move. If you're married to DeRozan and you know what you have an OG and you want to keep Van Fleet and you know Dellen Wright, 6'5 and rangy— I think Powell team can still talk themselves. He got four years and $42 million extension. and then Is that enough to drop below the luxury tax if they give a similar contract to Van Vliet? No, they wouldn't. Try. If they if they traded him and let's assume they renounced Lucas Noguera, I don't know how much salary they would need to take in return for Norman Powell, but they would have about about $8 million, between 8 and $10 million of room under the tax to re-sign Van Vliet. But they'd be, they would come awfully close to it. But that might be a method. He's probably the only player, and this includes DeRozan, that makes a substantial salary and that you could trade just into someone's cap space. Because first mm-hmm. of all, there's not a lot of cap space around. And you look at guys like Abaka, Valanciunas. Okay, fine. No one really wants bigs, especially those who are making that much money. Miles would be fine, but you need his shooting, and $8 million isn't going to cut it. I think... Uh, well, I actually, I'm curious to know your answer to that Lowry DeRozan question I asked you. Do you see either one of them getting moved or being shopped this summer? Not really. I think you can still trust that tandem I if think, you're in Toronto. I think there are going to be heavy DeMar DeRozan rumors, either leading up to the draft or just at some point in the middle of the summer. I'm just not summer. sure how much validity those rumors are going to have. They'll definitely exist. But No, I think they're going to be like full force. I don't know if they even move him. I'm trying to think of what would be a good parallel. But uh, how about the Kawhi Leonard stuff? It, it, like that level where maybe you don't env- I don't envision the Spurs moving Leonard but yeah it, it I don't could, think any of us do right now but I yeah think I, that's, really, fair. yeah. that's so, fair yeah so but I think the ultimate player who would be most likely to be traded to me is still Norman Powell I don't know if they're ready to give up on him but if you want to keep Van Vliet I I don't know what else you do because you don't really have any other just dumpable salary I kind of think OG played his way into Norman Powell being expendable 
You kind of hinted at that earlier. It's either that or... Yeah, it has to be him because even your best sweeteners, like Pirtle, no one's going to want a he's big... He's so important to that bench unit too. Well, he's important, but also no one's no one's going to be like, hey, let me get two bigs and Pirtle and Ibaka. That's just not something that's going to happen yeah. on the trade market. So the, the Raptors are going to be interesting this offseason. No money to work with, but now they're just sort of in this weird limbo that no one could have predicted. You said you'd think Casey deserves coach of the year, and I think he's a viable candidate. I picked Quinn Snyder, ultimately. I went back and forth. Totally fair. But it's just, think about where we were a month ago to here. Their, their offseason is just going to be super interesting. Yeah. I think we both agreed that Coach of the Year this year was just a fascinating award race because everyone was so close. There were like, what, seven viable candidates for that? I, I think, yeah, five to seven, easily. Because I yeah. think you could have given it to Pop, if like voted for him. Absolutely. To. There's Brad Stevens, Terry Stotts, Brett Brown. It's it's, yeah. it's the golden age of NBA coaching right now, apparently, yeah, absolutely. and yet everyone's getting fired. I'm going to let you throw it as the de facto. That's not really yeah. true, though, before we move off the coach's topic, because wasn't this like one of the first seasons in recent memory where no coach got fired during the season, or was that last year? That was last drawing year. drawing a blank. That was last year. Jason Kidd got fired, Earl Watson got fired. That's like right. Two that's right. There were a couple this, this year, but still like, not, not quite the overarching overhauls that we've seen in the past. Well, now it's all happening because it was too stable for a little bit, and now you just see everyone everyone kind of going. Do you have any thoughts yeah. on yeah. the Hawks hiring Sixers assistant Lloyd Pierce? So I honestly don't know much about him, but friend of the podcast, Alec Nathan, um, was is a Sixers fan who was telling us a little bit about him before the podcast, and apparently defensive-minded guy um, involved in player development. LeBron approves of him, so it sounds like he fits – the kind of thing that the Hawks are going to want to be doing here uh, based on the pieces that they have and the direction they've been trying to go. So uh, all I've seen is approval, which isn't always the case after somebody makes an unknown hire. So that's good news to me. I'll take it. Are you ready to name Torian Prince as the Hawks' best prospect yet? No. No, I think Torian Prince is the, the best player right now, but I'm still going to take John Collins' upside. But I am I'm very ready to concede that Torian Prince is absolutely a building block, which I was strongly opposed to going into this past season. He's like Jay Crowder, but good at creating his own offense, and it doesn't you know Jay Crowder's now up and down. But that's what he. And I'm not just saying that because of the haircut. Yeah, no, that's totally fair. I mean, as much as it pains me to say it, I'll have to say you were right here. <laughs> I know that physically hurts you. So in it honor does. of that, I'll let you pick. You want to go Eastern Conference Finals or Western Conference Finals? Let's save the best for last. All right, so Eastern Conference Finals it is. Yeah. <laughs> what do you... So Celtics-Cavs, Eastern Conference Finals, for people who don't know, I don't know how to approach this series because I, I look at it one of two ways. Is The Cavs seem like they're on tilt now. They're, the supporting cast is playing better, and LeBron is LeBron, and now they're going up against a Celtics team that's missing two of its three best players in Irving and Hayward. They could just steamroll them. On the flip side, while I picked the Celtics to beat the Bucks in seven, I thought they were going to lose to the Sixers in seven, and I did not see them almost ending that series in in four games. Like, what do we make of this series? I had a friend ask me who I was picking in this series this morning, and I refused to answer it because I have no idea. Like, I was I was with you on Philadelphia winning that series, and I picked Toronto to beat Cleveland like an idiot. Um, so I have no idea anymore because this Cleveland team, the supporting cast has very much done a Jekyll and Hyde impression throughout the playoffs. Is LeBron capable of wearing down? We have no idea. Probably not. And then on the Boston side, like, how does Brad Stevens keep doing this? There are too many questions that we just can't really answer to have any kind of reasonable prediction here. Yeah, I don't I don't even know which way to go with it, really. And one of the most interesting things, I think, is going to be how do the Celtics approach defending LeBron? Because we've kind of seen two different ones in the playoffs. The Pacers were really able to swarm him, but that's because his supporting cast was awful. And then you garbage. saw the Raptors tried to go one-on-one with him. Not completely one-on-one, but they tried to let guys survive without too much help, and he still blitzed them. What do you think the Celtics are best built to do? Some combination of both. 
I mean, I think that they're going to try to set up one-on-one situations where either Marcus Smart is going to play up or Jalen Brown can go at him or Marcus Morris. Apparently, Marcus Morris is the reason that uh, the the history of Marcus Morris is going to keep LeBron out of the finals or something. I think I saw an article about that today. But I think you want those guys to start on it and then take advantage of the fact that everyone in Boston can switch. And that's what they've tried to build around Horford in the middle. And he can switch for short bursts. So I I think you want to go one-on-one as much as you can, unless the supporting cast sucks, and then switch (laughs) when you need to. I mean, it would be great if Kyle Korver just forgot how to shoot again. Like, that would really help Boston a lot. Well, that's the Horford at least is a big that you can't play off the court, really. You, we kind of, like, with Cleveland, when you have LeBron and Love at the four and the five, they can run you off the floor. And that's sometimes a problem the Raptors face. You look at having Valanchunas, uh, you look at even Pirtle, but with Horford is just, he can, he can basically switch everything. And it's like you said, small spurts. You don't, I don't, people have talked about him maybe defending LeBron. I don't think you want that. No, no, no. But I think it helps that he can help you survive sort of a defense by committee approach there. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. It's not just a switch-heavy scheme. It's not a one-on-one try to get him in an isolation-as-much scheme. It's mixing the two together, committee. Who is, aside from LeBron, the most important player for the Cavaliers in this series? And I think the reflexive answer people are going to think is Kevin Love. But I feel like they're... Have, there's just to throw out the candidates, George Hill and the steady ball handling he provides. Kyle Korver has been the second best player for them at points. Tristan Thompson's defense. I'm just curious to know who you think is who needs to be on for the entire series to make sure either one the Cavs don't lose or at least don't run into demonstrative problems en route to the NBA Finals. Man, talk about leading the witness here. I f- I'm going to feel bad about myself if I pick Love after that. <laughs> Well, I'm just saying, is it Kevin Love? That's fine if you think it's Kevin Love. I think so. I think so, just because if he forgets how to shoot again, like we saw against Indiana, the team looks entirely different. Then you're asking LeBron to have to score 45 every night. If he's hitting his shots and if he has enough confidence to put the ball on the floor and go try to finish on the inside, that completely changes the defensive dynamics 100%. Um, They become so much tougher to guard. So as nice as it is to have... Corver running around screens and George Hill handling the ball. He Kevin Love is the key to everything besides LeBron. I almost want to say it's Kyle Corver because I don't see anyone else on the Cavs who can create, aside from LeBron, obviously, who can create just this intrinsic havoc for the defense because he is running around off of all those screens and you want the Celtics to be just a little bit scrambling and you don't want them to have really time to get set and Kevin Love a good pick and pop option he can do some stuff in the post we think but we've seen that Al Horford isn't gonna have a problem defending him or closing out on him and maybe that's why Kevin Love is so important because we saw what Horford did to Embiid uh, in in that Sixer series particularly if you look at the other side of the ball too though because Joel Embiid struggled to defend Horford he they had them in pick and pop all the time and Horford is just every time I watch him pump fake and then just drive towards the basket and he's either dropping passes or he's finishing it's you don't forget he can do it but it's like that's Al Horford doing all these things and people don't think he's a star I I, so that's what baffles me most oh the Al Horford Al Horford's a star it's not absolutely absolutely and the Boston Celtics are a big market team that is on national television a lot you would think that people would be able to look past the box score in this one instance. Like, I, I get people being late to come around on, like, Nikola Jokic because the Nuggets are never on national television and all you're seeing are the numbers. But, like, Al Horford is always on TV. Yeah, he, he just does everything really well. And I think even the scoring thing, his 17 points per game in the playoffs are a career high for the postseason. And he's still, you would like him to take more shots on a certain night when you see him in like these single digit situations. But at the same time, that's not his game. And he's so willing to not only pass, but he's, he's setting screens. And the fact that you have to cover him so far away from the basket, he's, he's like, he's shooting 45% combined between 16 feet and just outside the three point line. So yeah. including threes there, he's shooting 52%. On his drives. And this was the thing that got me. And I was writing about this earlier today. 
only semi averaged more time on Giannis Antetokounmpo in the Bucks series, and no one on the Celtics saw more reps possessions against Ben Simmons in that Sixers series. Huh. Yeah, I would not have guessed that. Because it's, I would have guessed the, the Giannis part. Well, I, semi, I would have guessed is the first, actually, because of how like wh- how they kind of adjusted to what the Bucks were doing. Yeah. What surprises – it's not a surprise, but it's, okay, yes, Giannis Antetokounmpo and Ben Simmons in height are bigs, but in function, they're nothing really like Al Horford, and yet he's going to be on those guys, and I, that's that's just incredible to me. He's so – he probably didn't deserve too much defensive player of the year love as we – geared towards the end of the season but Andy posed an interesting question on this pod last time right now right now not future right now who's the better player is it Joel Embiid or is it Al Horford I would have said Embiid going into that series and um, I think it's very close uh, I it's it's one of those situations where I think their overall talent is different than their talent when they're playing each other because you can be a bad matchup for somebody who's better than you. So they're neck and neck for me. I mean, I might have to give Horford the edge after this past series, but I also think he's just a bad matchup for Embiid. So it inflates how he looks and it deflates how Embiid looks. How's that for a sit on the fence answer? I know. I can the Adam specialty on this podcast. I can see the picket posts from here. Yeah. The For the Celtics, though, what I don't even want to say what needs to happen for them to win this series. But who do you most trust at this point? And we talked about this at the side as Good. their offensive hub. It's and if you want to say we'll say beyond Al Horford, is it Rozier? Is it Brown? Is it Tatum? Is it Marcus Morris? And that's one of the problems though that I do see in this yeah, times is that there's going to not be, be Marcus Morris, right? But there are some nights where it might have to be, which is both crazy and unsettling, but also kind of cool at the same time. Yeah, it's been a very weird playoffs, but what a nice problem to have that we're going to sit here and talk about whether Terry Rozier, Jalen Brown, or Jason Tatum, all of whom are what Rozier is 23 now, I want to say. I believe so. And he's the old man in that group. Yeah, what a nice luxury to have. Uh, I think I'm going to take Tatum, though. I know we talked about earlier today how his spot up numbers and his ISO numbers aren't particularly great, but... It's just something about the way he's taking over the game in these big situations, and it doesn't matter who's guarding him. And he has such a wide arsenal of ways to attack now, which is crazy for somebody at this stage of his NBA career, um, that he's the guy I'm going to trust with with the ball most. I kind of feel like, and we went back and forth on this, I feel like Jason Tatum will probably end up having the better career, probably, but I think Jalen Brown is the better player for them right now, even on offense a little bit, just because his fit seems, for the postseason specifically, just feels a tad more universal. He's shooting 45.5% on drives and 44.4% on pull-ups, but most of his offense, or close to half his offense, of oh. like attempts are ending in, in these spot-up possessions. And he has a 64.5 effective field goal per percentage on spot-ups. And what sells me on him this moves away from the offense, though, is he makes life hell for anyone he's defending, whether it's guards, small ball fours. He makes them earn his shots. Or the thing that I've been most impressed with at different points this season is some guys just seem like they don't even want to bother with him, and they'll just defer the possession. Always a good sign and very hard to quantify. You can, yeah, there. I think NBA.com actually has a deterrent factor, but I – like it's that's just I still need to read about how it works yeah yeah um yeah no I'm I'm with you on all of that and I think it's also worth noting that we're arguing basically for Brown versus Tatum almost with full knowledge that Rozier has been the most effective offensive player they have so far just the two series he's had already were just absolutely bonkers do you know what's inexplicable though is that every time he pulls up now and it's with Kyrie Irving like frequency and confidence Some of his moves look like Kyrie, too. Right. I expect it to go in, and the numbers just do not support that inkling. He's shooting under 30% on pull-up threes for the playoffs, but he's attempting almost four per game. Like, those, that's not not a guy who should be engendering that type of assurance. Like, oh, Terry Rozier just shot is probably going in, and yet he's had, mostly in the Bucs series, I would say more so than the Sixers, he just had so many big moments, you just kind of expect it. Well, and it's been his passing and control of the ball, too, that's made him so valuable to the offense. 
which isn't really going to reflect itself in a who are we going to give to score situation. Do you think, before I want your pick on the series, do you think that we're going to see a lot more of semi in this series because of yes. LeBron? You do? Yeah, and I think the, the Boston rotation has undergone enough changes and Stevens has been forced to play so many different players that he's going to trust trust everybody. Like, he's seen what Semi can do in a playoff series. So he's not really going to hesitate to deploy him, even if he wasn't in the rotation quite quite as much against Philadelphia. Man, if Semi ever hits his threes because he takes the right shot, even in the playoffs, I think he's shooting, I looked this up before, it's like 33% from three, and it's just very low volume, but he only shoots at the rim or from or from deep. And he, he yeah. actually, he's shooting over 40% on catch and shoot threes for the playoffs. If that's what he... Super low volume, fine. He's going to be a dangerous player because he's so just like this all everything on defense. I kind of I kind of agree with you, but I almost might expect Boston to really lean on the Brown, Smart, Horford approach maybe to start, and, and perhaps he'll have to rely on semi-more as the series goes on. I, I don't know. It's interesting, though, because I think they're the team in the East that would be best suited to give LeBron fits on the defensive end, or at least... Take the they're approach. the most bodies to throw at him. Right, or at least they're most likely to succeed from the stance of, well, we'll let LeBron score 40, but we're going to shut down everybody else. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. I think this is as much of a nightmare matchup for Cleveland as you're going to find this season. What's your official prediction? I mean, I picked against LeBron the last round. I'm not doing that again. <laughs> did you have, was it even, you Fool me once. six, or did you go Raptors no, in I, seven? No, I did have, I did have Raptors in seven. I'm going to pick Cleveland in five. And I feel like such an asshole doing that because the Celtics have been so good and they're they're well coached, but you just said it. It's LeBron. Look, listen to these ranks for his career that he's putting up this year for the playoffs and where he ranks in the stat category. He's this is the second most points per 36 minutes he's ever averaging in the postseason. His defensive rebounding rate, first, assist rate, the highest of his career. His block rate is sixth. His true shooting percentage is third. At his PER, the highest PER he's ever posted so far in the postseason. And this one got me. And we've talked about this on the pod before, but I still am kind of mesmerized by it. He accounts for 54.7% of Cleveland's offense when you factor in points generated off assists. That's the largest share ever for him in the postseason. Year 15. Year 15. It doesn't make any sense. What a pleasure that we get to watch him. Can we drop, and it needs to stop, where let's not try and make the Kevin Durant's better or if Kawhi Leonard still like the Spurs or Giannis Attentacumpo is here. Stop trying to make that, that crap happen. It just We need to sit back and enjoy LeBron. Don't even mention Jordan anymore at this point. Like Let's appreciate LeBron. Yeah, I'm totally with you. It's, it's just absolutely stunning what he's able to do on a nightly basis. And it's like the degree of difficulty on some of these shots he's getting is just rising every time. It's just, it's a lot of fun. And I think that sometimes we take all of this way too seriously. It's, like, it's really, fun. it's yeah. really fun. People, but get, I'm gonna, people go get mad for no reason. It's we're yeah, not at everything. There, there are serious stories to tell, but a majority of sports stories are not going to be in that department. This is we we talk about, we write about, we work within a game. Like you can have fun and you can enjoy things. Not everything has to be this debate that you need to win. Yeah, the the game where the game it was game two I think against the Pacers where he hit the first of his playoff buzzer beaters, and I was watching that down in the basement of my house. And like right when it ended, I went up and I told my wife like, I just feel really lucky to watch this guy. That shot. I think we need to to, to like take more moments and reflect like that. I'm so guilty of it where I want to put everything into historical context right away or evaluate what happened numerically but like it's fun to really just enjoy it sometimes the shot he hit against the raptors in game three i'm not even sure i had time to enjoy it because it happened and i was just like my immediate reaction was no way and then well of course it was just that was like yeah so i i actually wasn't watching that game live i was on a vacation with my wife and my grandmother to zion national park which was fantastic we were just leaving dinner um, and I was planning on like watching the game later, like a recording of it when I got back home. And a friend texted me what the situation was and that there were like 8.8 .8 seconds left. I was like, LeBron's going to hit a buzzer beater. And then it happened. And it was even more ridiculous than I possibly could have imagined, 
even though I knew that he was going to make a buzzer beater because he had to against Toronto. Do you think he's emoted more in, the, yeah. in these playoffs than usual? He just yeah, it's it's like the trend all season where this is he's like continuing to like toot his own horn more and more, and it's great. Like I wish I wish more people of his caliber would do that. Like he wants everybody to know how damn good he is right now. Uh, I yeah, no, good for him. I, he's he's been he's just go and he's older too. So I honestly believe that yes, he wants to win rings. But I also think that he, when he says that my legacy is secure, that he honestly doesn't give a shit. He cares, but I don't think he's... We want him to be obsessed with catching Jordan, or we want him to care about these debates as much as we do. Yeah. I'm not sure that he yeah. does. He feels fully validated. I think he did. You know I think That's he did. Fine. Yeah, but I'm saying he's reached the point in his career, age 33, year 15, where he doesn't care to sure. the extent that we would but want like, him to or think that he yeah, does. Yeah, but that chasing ghosts quote that he gave to Lee Jenkins, like that's an indication that yeah. he cared because you don't say that unless it's on your mind. Like not phrased that way. He, but he, I, I think he's grown into more indifference and ambivalence on that front. Or at least least just self-assurance and secure with what That's he probably is. what it is. And I yeah, I mean, it. I think when he went to Miami and probably even when he left Miami and went back to Cleveland. I think there was definitely some searching for identity going on to some extent, at least. And now he's just, he's totally embraced who he is. And that's, I mean, he's starting to use his, his voice even more on community issues, talking about politics and whatnot. Um, I think that everything we're seeing is just fully realized, confident LeBron. And it's, it's amazing how his game has changed now to include Pull up threes, step backs, fadeaways in the post. It's just yeah. uh, he's he's mesmerizing to watch, and we just we need to remind everyone and even ourselves appreciate it uh, just yeah. at this level because I will never predict his regression, but he is he's going to be age thirty four season next year. We don't know how long he's going to keep playing like this. Love it, just love it. Yeah, he's distracted us enough that I haven't gotten to say I'm picking Cleveland in seven though. I'm still going because I want to see I want to see as much of LeBron as possible, and it would just be amazing and a, just a great continuation of the story we're seeing these playoffs. If he does something heroic in the Garden in Game Seven to make the finals again, what is the, I'm, I just if, I just want the story. Well, then I want the record show. If these Celtics take LeBron to seven games, these Celtics, what they're uh, what do you predict for them next year? You're getting more speechlessness from Dan. Right, you're getting two top twenty players back, and but you pushed LeBron to seven without them, and you're getting two top twenty players back. I think they're getting to that weird good problem where they have too much talent, and it's almost like can, Gordon, can they reasonably deploy Gordon Hayward and Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum, Kyrie and Semi? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm just only talking about the wings. Like, you still have Marcus Morris, too. What are you going to do with him? Is Marcus Morris suddenly like a 12th man? I'm sure he's going to love that. Yeah, and it's just Bain shoots threes now, and Tice when he's... like, we go, Yeah, I forgot about Tice. Yeah, Tice I, was really important during the regular season. There are like 12 to 13 guys on this roster that would be regular top 7, 8 rotation players in on any other team, or starters, whatever you want to call it. But I guess now wouldn't be the time to talk about the Celtics' future. But if you're right, I don't think you will be. I just think the the inexperience or the lack of a Kyrie-type player on offense, even though Terry Rozier thinks he, he is that player, is going to come back to haunt them. I think Cavs in five, but if you're right, and it's Cavs in seven, even Cavs in six. I don't think I'm right, by the way. That's fair. I don't think I'm right either. I never do. It's one of the hallmarks of our personalities. All right, Western Conference Finals. I'm going to start it off with this. Do you think it's going to live up to the hype? Rockets Warriors for anyone who doesn't know. <laughs> I, do, I do. I think this one is is I'm more confident in this prediction that this is going to go the distance. I think that always creates a memorable series when we're at this stage of the playoffs and these teams have so many star players who are not just there's there's a difference between a star player like Horford and a star player like Steph Curry, not talking about like the difference in how good they are, but just the way that they create their stardom. Like Al Horford's is an impact on the game. Steph, James Harden, Chris Paul, um, and, um, and Kevin Durant, 
are all players who provide those memorable highlights and those memorable moments. When you have that many of them jam-packed into one series and one of them plays, or two of them play in an offense that naturally leads to a lot of isolation basketball, it's going to be really fun. I'm I'm not as optimistic that it's going to live up to the hype as you. And that's not meant to insult the Rockets. I just think watching Draymond Green basically teleport anywhere he wants on the defensive end now that the playoffs are here. He shot 40% from three, by the way, in the Pelican series. He averaged a triple-double for that series. He's so locked in and engaged. And Curry is now probably the freshest superstar left in the playoffs because he had that time off. And three of his four performances against the Pelicans were just really solid to great, including that closeout game. I don't know that the Rockets are going to have the firepower to combat what the Warriors do. Their biggest hope is, and it's this seems weird to say about a team facing the Warriors, but it's the three-point variance. Like, the, the Warriors don't, they take threes. They're not afraid to shoot them in transition, but they don't hoist a ton of them. Their three-point attempt rate per 100 possessions in the playoffs is sixth among the 16 teams. That's like, meh. So, yes, you can bank on Kevin Durant. is. By the way, Kevin Durant's shooting 20% for the playoffs on wide-open threes. That's not going to hold. Then the Warriors have lost no, two not. games. To me, the Rocks' best hope is right now, on average, per 100 possessions, they're making about five three-pointers more than the Warriors, less, a little bit less than that. You, you have to hope that kind of sticks because you want the Warriors to be the ones kind of making up that gap, and they can, but that's the way the game's going to stay close is if you out not maybe not even outshoot them efficiency-wise, but just outshoot them in volume. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other way is they're a better defense than people realize. And they're the kind of defense that can capitalize on the Warriors' biggest weakness, which is turnovers. And if they are pesky enough and frustrate the shooters to the extent that they're forced to put it on the floor more, then you have a chance to capitalize with a lot of transition points where you're not even having to run your offense. I think that's more unlikely than the three-point variance, but it's still another way. Another one of the bigger determining factors, though, can the Warriors play Clint Capella off the floor? And I don't think so. He's been... Matt Moore of Action Network tweeted out this stat earlier today that Clint Capella has defended 100 possessions off switches this season, which is 32 more than any other player in the mm. NBA. That says a lot about how much the Rockets switch, obviously, but it does show that he's going to be tougher to yeah. run off the court. I do wonder, though, I, I think it's a possibility that it's, it's, it might happen, even if it happens twice in this series, that hurts the Rockets because they even there were times against the Jazz, they kind of tried to force the issue by playing small, and Capella had to come back in because they couldn't really hang it, and I don't know how many how many minutes you can realistically get by with P.J. Tucker at center. Yeah, see, I, just, I don't think that they can run him off the floor uh, just because he's, he's too important to their offense as well, even though they run a lot of isolation. Like, his screening is a gigantic part of that offense, and I think it's a big enough part of an offense that is so deadly that it can mitigate some of the negative impact that he might have on defense if they're playing well enough to run him off the floor. Does that make any sense? No, it does. And he's big to their offensive rebounding. Uh, Their offensive rebounding rate, I saw this today, actually, too, declines for the playoffs by, like, almost 10 percentage points when Capella sits. Not surprised. Yeah, that's not – because look at who he's being – if it's Ryan Anderson that's playing the five, he's not going to offensive rebound. Nene is not really going to do that for you. And then Tucker, of course, if you go super small – one of the things, though, that does worry me, it's not an issue if, let's say, David West is getting minutes at the five or JaVale McGee. Once you go to the Hamptons five with Draymond or maybe even Kevon Looney at the five, that's where it could become tough for Capella. And at least during the regular season, the three games that— Never used it. Right. right. And he was the other thing was he was able to spend— time on Zaza Pachulia, who I'm not even sure he's allowed in the Warriors locker room anymore. So I, I this that is a legitimate concern for me, and I honestly don't know whether or not he's going to be able to stay on the floor and without it becoming some sort of a liability. Yeah, I mean, I think that's maybe the biggest factor 
in this whole series because Capella has been so vital to them and has been so good throughout the playoffs. I mean, it, I don't think... So I, I originally picked the Rockets to win this before the playoffs started and had them going on to win the title. And I'm, no, I'm not sticking with that, spoiler alert, since we're not doing picks yet. Um, but I think the only way Houston's going to have a chance is if it wins that battle enough that he continues making that size of an impact. Whose bench has the edge at this point? Is it still the Warriors? I look at the way... So Edward even goes- now. I mean, now that Bob Mute is back to... Like Houston so good. gains a little bit more depth. So good. Vontae yeah. is one of my favorite players, but Eric Gordon has not been shooting well, and I think that's what. But he hasn't all year though. That's, the weird thing about Eric Gordon is that just the mere threat of Eric Gordon has been more impactful than Eric Gordon himself, because he hasn't shot well all season long, but he still keeps having a positive impact on that team, even as a bit of a defensive liability. Now it's been harder because James Harden has not been shooting well. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. I mean that that the requisite there is that the two star guards shoot well. That's going to be an interesting part to the series too, because James Harden, I I don't. We talk about players like Lou Williams and Eric Gordon, how maybe they're not as effective in the playoffs because it's harder to get to the free throw line. James Harden, he's so much better than those players, but he's posting the lowest free throw rate of his career in the playoffs. And if his step back jump step back jumper isn't falling, and it's it's not at the moment, it becomes really hard. The threat of him, he still sends defenses into a tizzy just by attacking in the half court. But if one of those two things isn't happening consistently, if he's not getting the foul line as much as he's used to or his step-back Jays aren't falling and one opens up the other, there's probably a corollary there. It, all of a sudden the burden falls on Chris Paul, which is good to have, but he can't. this can't be another Jazz-like series, particularly towards the tail end of that five-game set. So the question I have is do you think that Harden's diminished free throw rate is in part due to the the teams that he's played. Jazz are a Where, sh- strong defensive team. The team and you're not he's not going to drive as frequently against Gobert. We saw that throughout the series. And then the Timberwolves have a perimeter stopper in Jimmy Butler who can at least slow him down a little bit. The Timber I would have expected him to have and he was better in the Timberwolves series, but yeah. I don't I don't look at both of the series and say and then would have been like, oh, it makes sense that he has the lowest free throw rate of his career. I don't see that. And it's not going to get any easier than against the Warriors. No, it's definitely not. Think about all the people they could throw at him. They'll, Draymond Green will switch on to him sometimes. We'll probably see, maybe not KD, but definitely Clay, who... We'll definitely see some JaVale, too. I hope so. I hope we get Zaza switch on to Harden. That's the dream. <laughs> before I... I know you have to leave, so before we get your pick, the one question I wanted to ask, is Clay Thompson officially underappreciated? Yeah, I think so. I think that we need to give him more credit for his ability to be consistent for this team. Um, everyone knows that he's a great defender, and if you're seeing any defensive metrics like NBA Matt's own defensive points saved that sell him short, it's just a function of the fact that he doesn't really rack up defensive counting stats. Um, like he's he's a really good defender. He's an unbelievable shooter, and it's so easy to just overlook. Not just what he does for the team, but also how consistently he does it for the team. I agree just on all the points there. And people, it seemed at the beginning of this year, tried to turn him into like the higher-end Avery Bradley, where his reputation was outsized compared to the actual production on the court. It's not defensively. I mean, in the Pelican series alone, you looked at what Golden State was doing. Oh, Rondo has a conscience? Clay, go get him. Oh, Drew Holiday is not really facing enough resistance? Clay, go get him. Guys can't do that. And the other thing that people don't value enough, they view his offensive role as so easy, which I guess is fine. But one, he he just goes through the ringer on screens in near constant motion. Close to 80% of his looks, this is just the playoffs, but this is par for the course. Close to 80% of his looks come while taking one dribble or no dribble at all. This isn't a guy who gets to... He could. I think you could see him branch out if he was on a different team. This isn't a guy who gets to branch out and attack all the time within an offense. And to be in the heart of your prime at the age of 28, to be an all-star, and you're just buying into this, to the extent that he talked about signing an extension with the Warriors that he could save the money, which is just a whole other issue entirely. I respect it, but I hate the idea of billionaires getting off easy. Amen to that. But anyway, um, so yeah, I'm in agreement with you. On Clay Thompson, the really I just want yes or no is James Harden going to have a 
is James Harden going to be James Harden against the Warriors? Or are we still going to be talking about his struggles during the Western Conference Finals? No, he's going to be James Harden again. He's too good not to be. I don't even know. <laughs> Honestly, it's as simple as that. I don't even know how to answer my own question, so I'm just going to defer to you there. And your pick? I'm going to go with Golden State in seven and, and backtrack from the original Houston pick. I just we've seen Harden struggle enough that some doubts are entering the equation, and I think Golden State is just better than we thought they would be at this stage. Everything seems to be working out really well for them with Steph getting enough time to to gain a rhythm and looking really good while doing so. That there aren't really the same concerns that we had about the Warriors potentially being vulnerable entering the playoffs. I'm going playoff. Dre is a real thing too. Yeah, it's like. And it didn't always used to be because he used to just be all over the place in the regular season. This year it was yeah. very – people were worried, but watching him it was like, nah, he's he's taking the Andre Godala approach. And look, Andre Godala all of a sudden all over the place too. I'm actually going Warriors in five. Okay. I just – I think they're so much better when they they've, – they've shown us now that they can level up just because it's the playoffs. And with Steph now having four games under his belt, knowing that they've played as well as they have now with Kevin Durant – not shooting well from three. He's shooting like 60% on long twos, though. Like, this team is just nuts. And he's shooting 76% at the rim. I could go on. I just don't... I think they're going to be overwhelming for the Rockets. And that's not even to diminish what the Rockets have done. I just think the way that they play offense with their stars is going to be easier for the Warriors to defend than vice versa with the way the Rockets have to guard Golden State. I hope you're right, because I, I want... Even though the playoffs have been entertaining to this point, we didn't really get a truly competitive second-round series. No, definitely not. And I, I I hope that I'm right, and I think you're right in all likelihood here. I mean, it's it, like you said, it's not to diminish what Houston has done. They were the best team in the NBA during the regular season. I don't think that you can make a, a reasonable argument otherwise, but Golden State didn't really care. Andre Iguodala doesn't have to care. Draymond Green doesn't have to be totally locked in. They dealt with a lot of injuries. Like, this is still a really good team. It's probably another thing about the NBA that we're not quite appreciating enough right now. Yep, and so we'll, we'll see what happens. Uh, I appreciate you coming on, like always. Uh, we hope you enjoyed our impromptu Western Conference Finals and Eastern Conference Finals previews. Make sure you're following Adam, the founder and editor-in-chief of at NBA Math, who is our host site. They're awesome. I'm also a deputy editor there, so of course I'm not biased at all. But he can be found at Frommel09, F-R-O-M-A-L-09. You can follow me at Dan Favalli, F-A-V-A-L-E. You can follow Andy Bailey Esquire at Andrew D. Bailey. NBA Math is at NBA underscore math. You can get at Hardwood Knox on at Hardwood Knox, spelled exactly like it sounds. Until next time, we leave you with the shout-out to Kyle Anderson and no one else.